You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. It was really nice to listen to all those voices on uh, Stick Together Show. Good show, James, especially for us at 3CR and our listeners, because uh, it gives us a fine view of the past and uh, the progress of this mighty community radio station and why radio is so important to connect communities. Today we're going to go to the last Sydney rally for Palestine. Of course it's ongoing. The uh, uh, news that Netanyahu has said that uh, there's going to be four days of uh, um, ceasefire while they gather up their Hostages, the uh, Hamas gathered up, um, is obviously a response to their own people uh, pressuring them to not kill their family members by uh, bombing Gaza. But uh, that uh, doesn't mean that uh, the war is over, as Netanyahu says. Uh, We're at war and we haven't achieved our objectives. So, you know, the hard man continues with his genocidal uh, attack on Gaza. So the rallies will continue. Uh, We'll hear um, another recording uh, contributed by Vivian Langford uh, and uh, some interesting uh, information that comes out of that, some of those speeches. Uh, We, of course, got, uh, um, have recordings from the Melbourne End and you'll hear them over the week from uh, 3CR. Uh, Respect March was was on Friday. It's the beginning of 16 days of action today against violence against girls and women across the world. It's a global uh, campaign. Uh, We'll hear some voices from that. Uh, uh, Connor Flynn is going to come in and talk to us a little bit about what's happening with the Preston market. the uh, the eye of the news might uh, waver from uh, important uh, news, uh, but things happen, and the machinations at uh, the Preston market and its fate has taken another step, which is very interesting. Uh, we're going to hear from Kevin. This is the week that was, uh, and we're going to have a chat with Boris Frankel, who's just uh, published uh, a memoir, really. It's called No Country for Idealists. Uh, fascinating look at uh, how his family in the 50s uh, went back to the USSR and how they then spent something like six years trying to uh, return to Australia. He's got a really lot to say about a whole lot of things 
the book is fascinating because it uh, gives a look at uh, what's happened to St Kilda, what's happened to uh, Melbourne, uh, and also uh, looks at uh, politics, progressive politics in general. A fascinating uh, read, and uh, there's going to be a launch of the book at Reading St Kilda on Tuesday the 28th at 6pm. Before we go on to the show, there's a couple of things just to put in your diary. Uh, there's going to be Palestine's uh, Solidarity Fundraiser that's being organised by Union Aid Abroad, a feeder at Trades Hall. Uh, it's on Wednesday, November the 29th at 5.30pm. It's going to be at the Trades Hall Loading Bay. They want you to respond and they want you to go to, go to the AFEDA site, A-P-H-E-D-A, um, AFEDA. Dot .org.au forward slash fundraiser dash four dash Gaza. Um, they obviously want to know what numbers are going to come. It's a musical evening. Uh, there's going to be uh, lots of uh, uh, acoustic as well as uh, uh, a local band of Greek musicians uh, playing Rebecca. Uh, Rebecca, fantastic. I did an interview with someone who made a film about Rebecca. It's uh, the wild sounds of the people on the edge. <laughs> Be worth going to see just to hear Rebecca. Anyway, the National Day of Action Housing is a Human Rights Rally, which is on September the 9th on Saturday, 1pm, Victoria State Library. Save public housing, keep it in public hands, protect the towers, freeze rents, and it's a national day of action. So, as I said, put them in your diary um, and, uh, of course, reserve Sunday. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm, State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Once again, we've come in our thousands to protest, to say enough is enough. They've attempted to erase Palestine from the world, but the world has become Palestine. Like I said, I'm Palestinian by birth, but Palestine is not just my motherland or my homeland. Palestine is all I am. It is my yesterday and my today, and my tomorrow. Today, I come with anger. I am angry. And this is a common energy amongst all of us today. This anger, 
may be a secondary feeling to the heartbreak and pain we are feeling as we witness the decimated bodies that have been killed by the Israeli occupation as the world turns a blind eye. Shame! Let me start the protest with this. We will not engage in a conversation that starts with, do you condemn the 7th of October? Do not, do not engage with us if your moral compass is the Zionist movement. Because I will be asking you, do you condemn the Israeli occupation? Do you, do you condemn the 11,000 Palestinians that have been killed in cold blood? Do you condemn the bombing of educational institutions, churches and hospitals? Do you condemn 49 babies being cut off oxygen and electricity, their basic human right to live and to breathe? Do you condemn the illegal establishment of Israel. This is what we will be asking you. And I will say this, I will say this. The white man has always said that peace is the answer. But I stand here and I tell you that peace and occupation do not coexist. Our next speaker, our next wonderful speaker, her name is Rand. She's a Palestinian activist. Uh, she's a convener of the anti-autonomous uh, collective against racism here in Sydney as well. Thank you, Rand. My name is Rand. I come from a town called Kuparkanna. It is my home, it is my place of birth, and I hope it will be the place that I will be buried one day. Kuparkanna is a Palestinian town in the mountainous north of Palestine, in so-called Israel. It lies between the Tiberius Lake and the Mediterranean Sea. To the north is Safad, to the south, Jenin. My family were Falahi, they were agricultural farmers. They were villagers who saw the land not as property to be owned or sold, but as providers of life, in fact, life itself. Olives, almonds, walnuts, wheat and figs. My family grew the fruits, fed the village and played among the trees for generations. We were a humble village. Colonial violence manifests in wildly different ways across the different Palestinian experiences. However, there is one experience, one moment in history which ties us all together, the Nakba. During the 1948 Nakba, neighboring villages began to hear words of entire villages being massacred rounded up and forced to exile. After hearing this, my great-grandfather, Allah Yirhamo, as a young adult, picked up a rifle that he did not know how to use. He went to the border and fought in the Fida'iyim. What ensued after was a depopulation of 520 towns and villages, the expulsion of 80% of Palestinians, and the creation of the Israeli state. The Palestinian towns that remained, it what then became so-called Israel, experienced an 18-year-long military occupation and experiences a system of apartheid until this day. Kufr Kanna is one such town. 
a town where colonial violence manifested through militarized conquest, through forced urbanization, and uh, a severed connection from agricultural roots. All of this plunged my family into poverty. No longer could Kanawis, the people of Kupakanda, live self-sustained and feed their families and villages. No, Israel, like all colonial projects, stole our fertile lands, they diverted our resources and turned us into cheap labor. I speak about our experience not to take attention away from Gaza or the West Bank, but to point out that liberation of Palestine is not simply becoming an Israeli citizen. True liberation means dismantling the racist Zionist ideology. Now imagine with me, I want us all to go back to October 6th. Before Hamas's operation, before the six weeks of carpet bombing and genocide that ensued, let's go back to October 6th just for a minute. What did it look like? Gaza was under a suffocating and unlivable siege. The West Bank was under military occupation where apartheid walls and checkpoints controlled the freedom of movement. Settler attacks against Palestinian civilians on Palestinian territory faced total impunity. <laughs> Jerusalemites faced home evictions and forced demolitions. The 48 territories lived under a system of racial discrimination, their identities threatened. Palestinians in exile still awaiting their right of return. This was October 6th. This was the status quo. It was a system of slow genocide, of land theft, of collective punishment and ethnic cleansing. Today, we are here today to say that there can be no return to the status quo. Forget it, it's over. There's no going back, not for the people of Gaza and not for the people of Kubrakanna. Today, we march forward with one fraction of the bravery of the Palestinian boys who throw stones at tanks. We march forward towards liberation, a just cause. Palestine will be free. But that liberation will not come easy and we all need to do our part. And we have a part to play here. The BDS movement is more crucial now than ever before. It worked in South Africa and it will work in Palestine. We need targeted boycotts of companies like HP and Puma. We need academic boycotts of complicit Israeli universities which are involved in developing weapons and military doctrines. We need protests and disruptions of the Zim shipping line, a major supporter of Israel and the Israeli military. We need you all to pass motions at your unions in solidarity with Palestine. We need to be talking about Israeli greenwashing and Israeli pinkwashing. Colonial states and corporations, they don't understand the language of human rights. They don't understand the language they only understand the language of political power and money. Yeah. 
I want to echo what Randa Abdul Fattah said here last week, which is that we need to make Israel a bad investment. We need to make Israel a bad investment for all of these companies, for all of these institutions. We do this through building a grassroots movement that tells these companies that we will not stop boycotts until they comply with international law and withdraw their support for Israeli settler colonialism. David Chipridge, who is a senator of the Greens party and a long-standing in solidarity of Palestine. Welcome, David. Well, thanks very much. I want to start by acknowledging and thanking Ani Shoal for that welcome to country. We know this land always was and will be First Nations land. We know this is Gadigal land and we know the connection between the struggles of First Nations peoples here and the Palestine struggle. Let's say it together. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land here today. And I know this is now six weeks of horror that we've been witnessing. Six weeks of horror and six weeks of wondering where is our federal government, where is our parliament, how can they not speak to this horror and ask for it to end? And I know that this is for many of you the sixth time you've come out here, for many more we've been out here for decades struggling for Palestine. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, we came out today and where did our government go? But let me tell you this, last week I was down in the federal parliament in the Senate. And we went down, my Greens colleagues and I and those few other good people in the federal parliament, and we went down there with you behind us in your tens of thousands. And we went down there with millions of Australians and millions and millions of people across the planet who came together just like this to demand decency and humanity from our politicians. And you were with us in parliament last week. You were with us. And I want to credit those two who came to Canberra. And on the Monday morning, the first big political moment was thousands and thousands of pro-Palestinian uh, campaigners out the front, making themselves heard and making themselves seen from federal politicians who want to turn their eyes away from it. And then when we went into parliament and we asked in question time and demanded of foreign minister Penny Wong and prime minister Albanese, and we looked them in the eye and my colleague Maureen Faruqi, my leader Adam Band and others, when they looked them in the eye and said, why won't you demand a ceasefire? And they lied and dissembled. With you behind us, we walked out of that place. And we walked out of that place. And you give legitimacy to the actions we take in Parliament. You give strength to the actions we you take in Parliament because they know when we stand there, we stand with every one of you behind us. So thank you for that. And I do want to acknowledge the unions that have come out today, the Teachers Federation, the ASU, the USU. And of course, always the mighty Maritime Union of Australia who blockades illegal, illegal weapon supplies and will always do that. And it's by building this movement of unions and fellow workers in your homes, in your workplaces, at your unis, at your schools, and credit to those kids for coming out too, it's that that is going to end. It's that that's going to end the occupation. It's that millions and millions of good people around the world. 
but our government should acknowledge its ongoing complicity, not just failing to call for a ceasefire, as shameful as that is. And how can those we elect go down into that federal parliament and somehow see a difference based on a border or a religion or a nationality? How could they see that difference? And how could they say they stand with Israel but refuse to see the common humanity between an Israeli child killed and a Palestinian child killed? We know the common humanity. We know the common humanity. And we will always demand and fall on the side of humanity. But our government doesn't. And worse than that, our government continues to export weapons to Israel. And then, and then they don't tell the truth about it. And they hide it. Every time an F-35 flies over Gaza and opens up its bomb doors, the machinery to open up those bomb doors and release the death on Palestinians was built in Australia. Shame! And our government refuses to say anything about it and continues to export. And worse still, the hypocrisy of Labor. When I pointed that out to Benny Wong, the foreign minister, and she said to me, and I, I, I cannot believe it, that how dare I politicise this? How dare anybody politicise this? Could there be a more political act than supporting human rights abuses and war crimes? Could there be a worse political act from our government? Shame on them. Shame on them. So I tell you this to you. We will keep coming back. We will keep coming back in our thousands, in our millions. And we won't fall for the lies about a humanitarian pause or a seven-day ceasefire while the occupation and the violence continues. We will keep coming back. And we, we will do it in our councils, in our, in our workplaces, until we throw this mob out of government. And we have, regardless of their political party, I don't care where they come from, we have politicians who acknowledge a war crime is a war crime and speak out against it. We have politicians and political leaders who say that the bombing of a hospital is a war crime. The collective punishment is a war crime and they say it loudly and proudly in our name, in the UN, in our parliament. Because that's the goal, to change our country, to change the world, to end, the, to yes have a ceasefire, but to end the occupation to have a peace with justice, and finally, have a free Palestine. Thank you very much. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm State Library this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.
You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we're moving on to the march that was uh, held on Friday, Respect March. It was uh, organised by Respect Victoria and it kicked off the 16 days of action against violence against girls and women. Uh, it's a global uh, um, campaign and uh, and you will realise the uh, ter- uh, terrible, terrible um, statistic over the last week, which uh, really underlines the uh, need for social change. Uh, um, six women were killed in the last week by um, partner violence in Australia. Uh, that is just extraordinary, really. Uh, but uh, here's a speech from uh, Antoinette Braybrook, who was uh, one of the opening speakers uh, at the rally. Our next speaker will be well known to many of you. Antoinette Braybrook has been the CEO of JIRA since it was established in 2002. JIRA is a place where culture is shared and celebrated and where practical support to Aboriginal women and people who are experiencing or have experienced family violence is available. Please welcome Antoinette. I acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I especially want to acknowledge Annie Joy Murphy for graciously welcoming us and allowing us safe passage on your land for this significant event. An event where we gather year after year to draw attention to how unsafe it is to be a woman in this country. Annie Joy, I look to you for guidance. I thank you for paving the way and for your strength and courage and determination to stay the course, to keep fighting for long overdue recognition of our people so that others in this country might come to recognise and feel privileged to be standing on the unceded lands of the oldest continuous culture in the world. As a woman, an Aboriginal woman, I stand here today outraged that So far in 2023, over 50 women's lives have been violently taken, many by men who know them. At least seven are First Nations women. In the last week alone, six women killed. This is a national emergency an epidemic happening right here in front of us, not behind closed doors, and it must end now. I have worked on the front line of Aboriginal women's safety for 21 years, and I have only seen things get worse. The trajectory is all wrong. 
Today, nationally, our women are 32 times more likely to be hospitalised for family violence than other women. And right here in Victoria, we are 45 times more likely to be hospitalised for family violence than other women. This is unacceptable and despicable. Our lives diminished to a statistic. The Aboriginal women behind these numbers are not seen or inquired after, their lives not valued. Being a woman and being Aboriginal makes us doubly disadvantaged and unsafe. Every minute of every day, Jira witnesses the tangible fear of our women facing not only their abuser, but the system and a society that has denied history and turned its back on our people. The system takes many forms. It purports to protect, but instead it targets, blames, punishes, and too often overlooks Aboriginal women and children's safety. Make no mistake, this is a violent system built on white privilege, dripping with racism. During, during this 16 days of activism, activate your activism and unite with us to amplify our voice, visibility and messages to drive change. Show up and speak up every day of the year for women. Call out men's violence against women and demand that it end. Advocate with us calling on government to invest in Aboriginal self-determination. Specialist Aboriginal community controlled organisations have the solutions. Give us the resources to innovate with our services and programs des designed and led by us. Stand up, step forward to address the abhorrent racism that exists in this country. Racism that we, as Aboriginal people, live with every minute of every day. Its prevalence finally revealed during what was to be an historic turning point for this country, but instead became a rejection of recognition and a refusal to listen. A deafening silence, destroying the hopes of Aboriginal people and many others. Agitate with us and call for structural change. Stop blaming our women for the violence they experience and stop punishing our women by taking their children. Today, Aboriginal children in Victoria are taken from their mums and their families at a rate far greater than at any time since white settlement. Shame. Family violence is a key driver. Advocate for investment into specialist Aboriginal community controlled organisations that support mums to escape the violence safely with their children. 
advocate with us to call on the government to put an end to its harsh laws and order policies, misguided advice from those so-called system specialists and experts. It is unacceptable that Aboriginal women are being misidentified as perpetrators of violence, criminalised and then thrown into a prison cell. It is unacceptable that almost 90% of Aboriginal women in prison have experienced family and sexual violence. Prison is not a place to heal. Finally, JIRA asks that you join our campaign by getting active in this 16 days of activism. Keep an eye out on our social media for what's happening and what you can do. Get behind us in our calls for investment to st establish and create our 21-year vision for an Aboriginal women's centre in Victoria, the first of its kind, a place where Aboriginal women can ac access critical services for their safety, a place where women can celebrate being First Nations women and a centre that enriches the lives of all people in Victoria. You can show up at our event in Victoria Park in Collingwood on the 5th of December at 9.30. Flyers are being handed around and you can go to JIRA's socials to find out more. Come along and get active in the many activities on the day. Show us, starting today, that you are ready. Ready to activate your activism. Let's unite to prevent violence against all women. Now, let me hear you say yes when I ask you this question. Are you ready to activate your activism? Yes. Can't hear you. Are you ready to activate your activism? Yes. Let's go. Yeah, we're down at the Respect March that uh, happened on Friday. And uh, we're going to go to a, the uh, another speaker at that march. Uh, it's uh, starting off the uh, 16 days of uh, global activism against violence against uh, girls and women. Joe Ball is an LGBTIQA plus advocate and the CEO of Switchboard Victoria. Switchboard provides peer-driven support services on a range of issues, including family violence for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, gender diverse, intersex, queer and asexual people, their families, allies and communities. Please welcome Joe. Thank you. And I do want to acknowledge um, the welcome to country we got today and that this is Wurundjeri land. I was also reflecting um, on the fact that, you know, I run a seven day, two seven day a week helplines for the LGBTIQA plus community. And I was working at Switchboard during the marriage equality postal survey. And my experience then of our community had a terrible time during that. And we ended up with a yes. And what happened to First Nations people? All of us, we've got to fight until First Nations people get a yes. Right. 
there's so much violence in our world. There's violence in our homes, in our streets, in our workplaces, and there is war. The violence writ large. Two months ago, we said one woman was killed every week in this country, and we yelled about that. But as of Monday, this week, six women have been killed. Six women in seven days and counting. Two months ago, we called it a crisis. Now, what do we call it? Perhaps we call it a national emergency, but I want to call it something else. I want to call it enough. And I want to call for all federal and state politicians to be on notice if they are not already on this issue. The time for inquiries is over. The 10-year plan at the federal level is written. Let's roll it out. No more equivocation. No more needs to be understood. But we must act. You know, the feeling that I'm left with was what if family violence serv services were fully funded and they had to run GoFundMes for nuclear submarines? What if we gave the equivalent of tax-free tax cuts to women and people living in refuges rather than giving it to billionaires? What if the next Prime Minister was Antoinette Braybrook? What if the next Children's Commissioner was Connor Powell, who we're going to hear from? But no, seriously, what if victim survivors were in these positions? What kind of country, what kind of decisions would be made at that level? So what if enough was bloody enough? So it's time to bin forever those inquiries into Aboriginal children, those trumped up inquiries that the coalition has made up and they made up after the referendum. And they need to take every single dollar they were going to spend on that inquiry and all the wages of people who suggested it and they need to give it to Jira and they need to give it to Dadi Manwaro and they need to give it to Elizabeth Morgan House and they need to give it to Aboriginal services. And if we're thinking about reallocating funds, how about we bin that inquiry into transgender kids that Maura Deming in this house and Pauline Hanson made at the federal government? And what if we took that money, that money that they're saying needs to be made into inquiries into children that only want, only want healthcare? How about we took all that money and we actually gave it to sexual assault services in this state? Because it was on these very steps in March that a far-right activist, Posey Parker, was cheered on by neo-Nazis for, for suggesting that the crisis affecting women in this country was trans people. We all know that is not true. They are victim-blaming and they are divisive. In fact, the Trans Justice Project report, Fueling Hate, shows deeply concerning increases in online and in-person anti-trans hate and a rise in anti-trans violence. 
Stopping gender-based violence means supporting all people's gender expressions and identities. Stopping gender-based violence means safe and welcoming places for people to play sport, to practice their faith, to go to school, and to be anywhere they want in their communities. And to be themselves. Stopping gender-based violence means calling out gendered systems of power and oppression. And we need to stop violence in all its forms. Today we march together, for all of us, to stop the killing of all women and to end family violence for everyone. Every single person deserves to be safe. Every person deserves to be able to flee from violence, whether that distance is measured in kilometres or countries. Every person deserves to heal from violence. Every person deserves to be able to tell their story. Every person deserves respect. And respect is when we demand that enough is enough. Respect is when we stand shoulder to shoulder and reject the hate and division and those who want to make trumped up, and I use that term deliberately, trumped up divisive politics that put the blame on victim rather than on the real causes. Respect is when we feel in our hearts that my struggle is your struggle and that together we work for collective justice. And respect is not stopping till we end all gender-based violence. Thank you. Slutwalk returns to the streets of Nam for its 13th year in the fight against victim blaming, slut shaming and rape culture. Join the annual rally on Saturday 25th of November for speeches, stories and to take a stand. Come to the State Library of Victoria in Melbourne CBD at 12pm in person or tune in here on 3CR for a live broadcast of the event. Join us however you can to say enough is enough and become a part of the global movement, calling for education for all, accountability for abusers and justice for survivors. More info via linktree slash Slutwalk Melbourne. Slutwalk Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And in the studio, we've got Connor Flynn. How are you, Connor? Good, Annie. Great to be with you. Yeah, yeah. Now, you've got some news about what's going on at Preston Market. I mean, there's always so much going on. And as I was saying, there's, it's a very dark feeling we've got at the moment. But something good has happened at the Preston Market. Well, that's right. Um, FreeCR, this radio station, has been a keen observer of that community campaign to protect and defend that vital open space and uh, a few weeks ago we received some news that uh, the leases at the market will be extended for a further five years which is on top of the government's uh, compromise solution to protect the site um, while accommodating for development so okay and tell us about the compromise uh, government's plan so the last time I was here, it was just before a major rally was held um, at Preston Station, hands around the Preston Market, where about 2,000 people gathered in support of Preston Market. And a few days earlier, the state government announced that they were going to introduce a That's a whole of, lot of mealy-mouthed words. Yeah, yeah, you know, I studied or tried to study urban planning for a while, but even the terminology went over my head. But in short, essentially said that 
the site or a large part of the site can remain, but um, a, you'd have to build around it rather than knock down 80% of the market, move it to the eastern side um, of the location. Which was what the developer wanted to do. Absolutely. Yeah, and so uh, giving uh, stallholders five years leases, that's a really good sign. It is, but it doesn't take into consideration that a number of um, storeholders have had to sell up their businesses and move away because of the uncertainty that our Sultimedic um, had over them and their lives and their livelihoods for a long period of time. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So where does it leave the community now? Well, I think in my perspective of chatting with people I know in Preston and Reservoir and indeed throughout Melbourne, um, people are have breathed a sigh of relief that this community asset is going to remain where it is because it was a dark cloud was hanging over Preston. You've got to remember that for a very long period of time, you know, it's been in the it's been in the forefront of development in the eyes of the state government and Salter as well. They've always known that Preston is an asset in, in part of planning policies in this city and Salter wanted to completely knock it down and transform the northern suburbs. So having that certainty is great. Have you heard any reaction from the developer themselves? You know, Salter Medic, they, they put up a number of press releases um, through their channels on LinkedIn, but also the close ties with Channel 7. But after the announcement was made in August, they um, remained very quiet. And the announcement itself was made through their through a trading group with close ties to Salter called We Are Preston Market. So that announcement came from them on their social media rather than Salter itself. Oh, that's interesting. So this is actually a, a definite move by the state government to listen to... It's been a concerted effort, of course. It, it uh, They've finally actually accepted that the community has is a stakeholder here. Absolutely, but we must remember that if it wasn't for pressure from below from a well-organised community campaign, the Preston market would be rubble right now. Yeah. You know, the during the pandemic, the state government, you know, was ramming through a series of planning proposals. They had um, secretive hearings, um, which, you know, what, consultative committees, you know, the like show trials, you know, rubber stamping, you know, official government policy. Um, but coupled with, with, you know, that was all set to go ahead. But, you know, the community got organised. They organised a series of rallies. Um, they engaged in a wide variety of different avenues of struggle, whether that was, you know, the electoral space. I mean, it's really important that the Labor Party, which have held the seat of Preston since its creation in the 1940s, they almost lost on the back of this issue. Um, there are an internal polling said no, we'll only lose three or four percent of the vote on this issue, but they almost lost. Yeah, they lost. They they lost fifteen percent. They did, and you know the the local Labor MP. You know, one of our first actions in the year was targeting the Labor Party because they were a weak link. They said to be on the side of the community, but all of their actions inside and outside of Parliament demonstrated that. Um, Mm. It's interesting to me too. I went down to that rally outside that uh, office, and um, something that really is obvious is that uh, one, I was on the train station, which was uh, sort of uh, Russian brutalist, uh, and I'm thinking to myself, and also the person's office is on an incredibly busy road, which is all these things are very. Uh, 
human a not human scale and not friendly uh, and it's it appears to me that a whole lot of stuff is going on that is making this city almost unlivable uh, for human beings and this is this was at the nub of this wasn't it it was i think that what type of city we want to live in was at the heart of this issue was it a city in the interest of profits or, the, or a city in the interest of people? And that was the message that I was reinforcing in conversations I had with people, but also at forums of where community members were allowed to speak. Um, in May, the campaign organised a mass rally at Preston Town Hall. About four to 500 people turned up and that was the overarching theme of those conversations in that meeting, up to including that if push came to shove and if you know the government decided to go knock down the market, that the community were prepared to engage in a series of community pickets to defend that site. As we've seen, you know, with efforts like the East West Tunnel, Fitzroy Pool, Richmond Secondary College, there's a whole number of examples in recent memory of the community um, acting in its own interest to defend public space. And, you know, people live in these in suburbs. It's like their town, uh, but others who are making the decisions are in their chauffeur-driven cars and never stop. Oh, that's right. Like, you know, when um, Sam Tarasio first purchased the site in 2004, Preston wasn't the place to be, you know. It was, you know, 10 kilometres away from from the city, but it wasn't seen as like what Northcote or Formbury is now. But Tarasio, you know... He's one of the richest people on the planet for a reason. He's a very smart capitalist. Like he recognised that given the anarchy of planning controls in the city and that the government were always looking to sites like Preston but also Box Hill and, and the outer west of profit making, um, that's why he held on and neglected that site for as long as possible to say we can't possibly repair and restore. I'm going to knock it down, transform it into apartments up to 20 storeys high and then cash out at maximum return. Yeah, yeah, and just have this ronioed uh, mass of flats that run, I mean, I know they like to call them apartments, but they're dog boxes, basically. One of the most galling things that was labelled against our campaign is that we were opposed to affordable housing, which was completely That's incorrect. That's really, really irritating, isn't it? Especially when it comes from people who profiteer over the housing affordability crisis. We thought they were having us on. Um, in plans that members of the community in our campaign put forward, we could still keep the market and then build a series of developments around it, but with an emphasis on, on public and affordable housing. Yeah, well, it's just it's just because they go to public relations um, uh, firms who come up with a good idea and a hook. That's what it is. It's like it's like um, uh, everything's based on gossip and everything is inflamed and emotional rather than actually dealing with the facts. It's a terrible thing. It's like a punch on the community's face. It's very much like the coverage in the Palestine at the moment. <laughs> you bet. Um, Okay, so this is a watching brief because, of course, we've learnt over time that five years is one thing, but uh, never lose your grip on the uh, or iron the ball. No, that's absolutely right, Annie. Um, but there's a few teething issues that remain, like the state government, now led by Premier Jacinta Allen, has said that there's going to be no room for consultation, so there's avenues in which the community can still apply pressure on the government. They say that we've already had those hearings in 2021, 2022. There's no need for anyone to engage in the process further and they're currently thrashing out um, and what the site will be like um, in the planning offices in Nicholson Street as we speak.
Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? The government thinks they're more important than the people. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for coming in and talking to us and updating us. No worries. And just lastly, Annie, I think that the recent times have, especially in Israel and Palestine, have highlighted the importance of um, independent and free media. Um, it's galling that since uh, October 7, that more than 52 journalists have been killed in the conflict. As we know, more than 46 Palestinians, about three Lebanese journalists and four Israeli journalists as well. So journalists are always in the front line um, when it comes to reporting on those conflicts and always the first casualties as well. So... A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, went twice in a week. Irresponsible, no respect for their elders, school students took to the streets in defiance of mature adults like socialist and caring business class politicians who warned them against thinking climate change, if there is such a thing, posed a threat to their very existence and against denouncing the existence, if it can be called existence, suffered by Palestinian children. Death, injury, orphaned, homeless, constant and fear of bombs and guns, no health care, no education, no basic amenities, no food or potable water. That huge protest and march described by the Zionist lobby as a hate fest, leaving us to ponder which bit of opposing the dreadful suffering of children is hate. The very perpetrators of the suffering deeming it hate to oppose their slaughter and destruction. On which, and not as satire, the obvious hypocrisy of the Zion lobby, removing support for and boycotting any person or organisation who stroke which is in any way critical of the slaughter, but accusing those who call for a boycott of businesses associated with Zion, anti-Semitic. And in five days or less, Zion plans to continue the genocide. Shame to those who denounce the student protests and congratulations to those thousands of young activists. Now the week that was, a week when people are often critical of Troubloisi's richest person, but Gina Wrongheart is all heart caring only for the common good, exemplified this week in her call for government to stop preventing investment in what she calls the backbone of society, the resources and agribusiness sectors. And it's but a coincidence that Gina just happens to have huge financial interests in both. It's simply her concern for the less well-off, which in her case is everybody else. Mining corporations and their workers should spend time every day lobbying government to remove impediments to investment and therefore to prosperity for all of us. Like environmental controls and the need to consult annoying non-entities like terra nullius non-land non-people. Gina's iron ore mine proposed for McPhee Creek a classic example. Delayed by Western Troubler was the Environment Protection Authority green tape such as demanding an exclusion zone around a bat cave, which must be reduced. Indeed, Gina is appealing against the crippling environmental conditions placed on the project. The delays in assessing the McPhee project by overreaching and onerous conditions has delayed our investment, preventing the creation of jobs and economic activity. Gina was so upset, selfless because her concern solely those who do not have those jobs, never thinking of herself. Uh, uh, but Gina, you could proceed immediately if you accept the EPA conditions. And those conditions have forced us to appeal. It is bureaucracy gone mad with no concept of how great businesses like Gina Inc. operate.
and what environmental conditions would conform with how you operate. Uh, well, carte blanche. The altruism of the filthiest rich of the filthy rich to make life better for peoples across the globe was proven by an Oxfam report this week that the filthiest rich 1% is responsible for the same amount of carbon emissions as the poorest of the poor two-thirds of the global population, or 5.11 billion people. How lucky, lucky, lucky those 5.11 billion poorest of the poor that the 1% of the world's filthy richest so care for them. But it's not just Gita upset at the bureaucratic barriers placed before the resource giant's altruistic crusade to eradicate world poverty, uh, which some cynics, and we certainly wouldn't agree, some cynics might say at their rate of emissions will succeed by eradicating the world altogether. With Santosas, the prophet supremo Kevin Gag, all of you declaring righteously the shrill voices of climate activists and politicians in affluent electorates representing the wealthiest true blue Aussies is costing the country jobs and reducing the living standards of average true blue Aussies by blocking new gas projects. In this case, upset that selfish, selfish Tiwi Islanders have won a court injunction on poor Santosas running a gas pipeline through their traditional waters from its Barossa project north of Trublawazi, pending a, a full hearing. Uh, no amount of climate litigation will make the energy transition faster or stop the oil and gas projects needed to meet the world's energy demands. But if it continues, it will cost true blue jobs, it will drive up energy prices, and it will damage our economy, he told the Western True Blue Energy Club, and surprise, surprise, they all agreed. See, like Gina, his sole concern is jobs. And we know how much they go out of their way to make energy prices as low as possible. Further, Kevin complained the Tiwi case is being funded by the Environment Defenders Office, presumably giving them an advantage over poor Santosas. An outrageous abuse of and use of the public purse. Wasted public money that could be used to provide subsidies and corporate welfare for the great resource behemoths, contributing to the emissions they know are essential for the transition from emissions. With industry spokesperson Samantha McClock the Greenies providing the obvious sensible solution. Ban them. The government must step in and end the lawfare. Samantha ordered the government. Lawfare. Abuse of the legal process by Greenies, activists, terra nullius, non-land, non-people, the Environment Defenders Office, made worse by the little fact that time and again the law they abuse rules in their favour. Samantha and Kevin and Gina know democracy and respect for the proper legal processes demands they be banned from access to the law. It's just common sense. Also expressing common sense, the big true blue of which we're all so proud. BHP for bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter, warning us. The true blue position as the world's premier mining destination, news in itself, is threatened by all by the all Benghazi government's looming industrial relations overhaul and sharp increases in state government mining royalties. 
poor bloody huge, selfish, selfish governments and the threat that it may have to pay its workers the same pay for the same job when it established its own labour hire subsidiary to avoid that threat to prosperity. Clearly, in the national interest, as Reserve Losses Bank Supremo Michelle Bulldust also told a caring business class get-together this week, the sole cause of inflation was wages, and wage rises meant rates would have to keep rising to control inflation. Uh, But Michelle... I displayed my naivety. Uh, Aren't the huge increases in prices by the corporate sector the reason why it's called inflation? That is so naive. That so misses the point. Uh, But but wages are simply the price of labour. As prices soar, uh, shouldn't the price of labour increase? And and wage rises are still not keeping up with the cost of living anyway. That is so naive, that so misses the point. Every economist who understands the delicate flower that is the economy knows wages are the sole cause of inflation. We must rein in the greed of workers. There. My naivety exposed by the expert. That contributor to the economy extolled by Gina and Kevin and bloody huge profits is highlighted by great international fossil Chev wronged by the taxman who revealed that in 2021 on revenue of $9.2 billion, this great corporate citizen paid a massive tax impost of exactly $30 on $9.2 billion. And it complained, this this is true, that it should have paid nothing. Naturally, like all of them, it meets its legal tax obligations. Mentioned last week, our Minister Michelle, rolling along with them, was given a lavish birthday lunch by the gambling industry. Well, no connection, but this week Michelle announced she was unlikely to adopt a call to ban gambling advertising. And we're sure the cost of all that advertising helps them meet their legal tax obligations. The Spit the Dummy Loyalty of the Week Award to Caring Business Class Party MP Russell Broad Bertie's Bridges, who resigned from the Caring Business Class Party on a matter of profound principle. He got knocked off at pre-selection for the seat he's held on and off for more than 30 years. Not just knocked off, 161 votes to 16, showing his broad burnt support. So it's their own fault. If they'd supported him, he wouldn't have had a quit. To sit on the cross benches, well named in the circumstances, until the next election, after which he'll be sadly missed by all of us who appreciate the parliamentary democratic system. The euphemism of the week award was a walk-up start. Well, a blow-up start. After Elon makes fortune, Starship Rocket blew up yet again, and yet again Elon's team called it a huge success, presumably because it managed to get off the ground before it blew up. Sure, sure, it's a huge success if the idea is for it to blow up, but uh, I rather think that isn't the plan, and all these huge explosions must be encouraging potential passengers whom Elon hopes to attract, but no, calling the disaster a success was not the euphemism of the week. That came from an Elon employee who excitedly lauded the success, then said, there was a rapid unscheduled disassembly. A... Rapid, unscheduled disassembly? The bloody thing blew to smithereens. Elon, team, your euphemism of the week award is on its way. Finally, 
not a particularly amusing ending, but this international incident over sonar discombobulating a couple of Troubler Aussie train killers told it can cause confusion. Good heavens, confused train killers. Confusion, disorientation, internal organ damage, a litany of illnesses. But presuming True Blue Aussie and the US Arvin, the train killer merchandise marauding the oceans, all use sonar, why hasn't someone asked, what the hell is it doing to the marine life which can't clamber back on board and get out of the way? Oh, of course, they, they don't matter. Good morning. This is a uh, logging operation. Any person found within this coop is offending. Can they please leave? You're allowed no closer than the bridge down the track there. Any person that's found in the coop will be arrested and charged. <laughs> I direct that you all leave now. Gecko's turning 30 and we're having a party. The Goongra Environment Centre has been fighting to protect East Gippsland's forest since 1993 and we want a party with you. There'll be music, performances, food, drink, old friends and new friends. What better way to celebrate the end of native forest logging in Victoria? From December 1st to the 3rd in Goongra, East Gippsland. To find out more, go to gecko.org.au. <laughs> Gecko, 30 years fighting for forests. Get down to the party. Celebrate with us. A 3CR supporter. This is Ari Lecker, you're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we've got Boris Frankel on the line. I've just squished the button. G'day Boris, how are you? Good morning Annie. Yes, I'm very pleased to have a chat with you. I was very interested in your book, No Country for Idealists. Um, tell, I mean, there's so many things to talk about uh, because it's not just about your family uh, wrong-footing itself and going back to the USSR during uh, in about 1956, which turned out to be a, a, um, a wrong move. But... Uh, you talk about a whole lot of other things as well. You, Because you were a young child in St Kilda, you talk about the transformation of tra of St Kilda into a car paradise rather than the paradise you remember as a child. Yes, well, the book is um, about our family, as you said, uh, but it's also set in a historical context of explaining just what life in Australia was like in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. Uh, and, um, I mean, my reference to St Kilda here is that uh, St Kilda was... Uh, uh, a lot of criminal damage was done to the streets of St Kilda so that uh, um, the expansion of Melbourne into a, a megaopolis... I mean, people don't realise that today Melbourne is 10,000 square kilometres... Can you imagine that? It's almost 100 kilometres by 100 kilometres, not exactly those dimensions, but uh, the outer boundaries of uh, Melbourne in the 1950s 
were, uh, say, Oakley was kind of the border there beyond Oakley. All the kids thought it was just country out there. Yeah. We, won, we, won, went, we once went to Fern Tree Gully on a trip to the, uh, to the wildlife sanctuary there, and there are only a couple of houses next to the railway station there. You're out in, you know, the rainforest. And all of that area of Melbourne was built up from up to Box Hill and then from Box Hill, you know, up to um, Upway and beyond. And uh, uh, the same with the area, Moorabbin was the outer boundary and all that area going right down to the Mornington Peninsula, which is just suburbia now, uh, well, St Kilda was the casualty in that, as were other inner suburbs like Fitzroy and Collingwood and all these other places there where the freeways and the eight-lane expansions, you know, uh, demolished whole streets. Uh, and uh, so St Kilda, like other inner suburbs, are now car sewers in a sense. <laughs> it, it's it's not that uh, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, people had to have somewhere to live, but there was no real conception of what a city of that size would mean for both the residents who are totally car dependent. In many uh, suburbs, you can't you know walk anywhere to a shop or. A basic social facility, and um, so the inner suburbs were the casualties of of this massive expansion. Well, well it's interesting because it, uh, it, it when I was reading your book, I was actually because the focus, as it was uh, promoted, was about the your family that uh, your father was. Uh, I mean, you go into his whole history, which is great, uh, and embed uh, a whole range of elements that are personified by your father, even down to the leaving uh, uh, before the war, how he got away from Europe, how he went to what was Palestine, how he arrived in Australia on a, as a Palestinian. Uh, but, of course, he was of Jewish background, which really, at the moment, is incredibly uh, interesting and revealing, and then comes to Australia. Uh, it's... And then he is a devotee of uh, the idea of the workers' paradise, and that's why he takes you back to the USSR. Um, but the the title, um, uh, No Country for Idealists, actually makes you question um, Australia as well. It's not just the USSR, but it makes me question um what was going on in Australia as well. So that's one of the reasons why this book is so compelling, I think. Thank you. Uh, look, um, the subtitle of the book uh, is The Making of a Family of Subversives. And uh, because my parents were active in the Communist Party from the late 30s and uh, through the 40s and, uh, and and into the 50s, even though they were not officially members of the Communist Party in the 50s, because my father took a Soviet passport and the Communist Party insisted that he couldn't remain a, a member after 1947. But um, it's about Australia. I mean, the, the Soviet Stalinist dictatorship uh, was one thing, but many people idealise uh, the Menzies period when today, using the language, you know, the Viktor Orbans and so forth in Europe, who are called illiberal democracies, the Menzies government was a very authoritarian uh, place. And for those who are old enough to remember it, 
you couldn't read most things, you couldn't see particular films. Um, people don't realise that uh, the Menzies government, uh, after they were defeated in the 1951 referendum to ban the Communist Party, they uh, had a secret plan that ASIO and the and military intelligence devised annually to lock up approximately 11,000 people per annum. That went down to 5,000 at its lowest point. Between 1951 and 1971, each year, uh, ASIO had to present a new set of people that they would lock up in detention camps or concentration camps, for lack of a better term, uh, that was presented to the inner cabinet. And this inner cabinet of Menzies, the Minister for Immigration, the, the Minister for Defence and the Attorney General who uh, presided over ASIO, only these four or five people knew the list of the names of all these women, men uh, and children uh, who were going to be locked up, and they weren't just communists or leading trade unionists, they were all the, you know, heads of the migrant uh, clubs and associations. Uh, uh, the, the news would have been so explosive that had it been in the whole cabinet of the Menzies government, it probably would have leaked, causing uproar. And so for 20 years, this authoritarian measure to lock up thousands of people is essentially not treated by our historians and the media. It, it's, it's just ignored. It's really extraordinary. The uh, one thing that people do say, and you, you are obviously a recipient of it, is that the despite ASIO's sort of Keystone Cops sort of attitude, uh, uh, they were uh, recorded all these things and kept them together. And um, it's a... It's a um, a cornucopia for the historian. Yes. I mean, my book is based on um, access to hundreds of uh, documents uh, that ASIO, the Prime Minister's Department, uh, Department of Immigration, External Affairs and all other departments had on uh, our family and the way that uh, we were monitored. And, of course, uh, without giving away too much in the book, it's... Uh, a book where uh, we are classified as subversives, as were many other people in Australia. And the, the broad definition of subversive, uh, I mean, some of our friends, when I looked at the files, the fact that uh, one of our friends went and read books from the Australasian Book Society was enough to classify him as a subversive. And the fact that he signed a petition for a ceasefire in the Korean War was enough to make him a subversive. So, <laughs> yeah, so that, that, public, that public library t uh, ticket you've got, that, that is the card for subversiveness. Well, I don't know about whether all public library holders, <laughs> but certainly there were particular... Um, Many of the people that are household names, well, household names later on, people like Alan Marshall and that, who belonged to the Australasian Book Society, their books were published. Um, of course, Frank Hardy was a well-known communist, but, but there were many others who um, are now read uh, as texts in schools. Um, uh, so it, it was a society that people don't realise was... Um, 
quite repressive. Not repressive in the fact that they threw people in jail for reading a book, or as in the Soviet Union or whatever, but, uh, but repressive nevertheless in terms of restricting our liberties. This um, experience of you as a, a young person, because you, you got to return to Australia when you were 14, that, that must have been, um, in a funny kind of way, a liberation because you stood up to the pain and the worry of it all. Yes, well, the book is an account of how we went uh, from Melbourne to uh, the Soviet Union and what we uh, discovered there was a complete shock because uh, my image of the Soviet Union was uh, attending Soviet films at the Carlton Bug House where my father used to present films for the Australia-Soviet uh, um, Society, Friendship Society and then reading the glossy magazines about how wonderful life was in the Soviet Union and he genuinely believed that. And so arriving there, I mean, it's an account of the incredible uh, kind of, uh, you name it, we saw it in terms of the very opposite of the workers' state and how workers were treated. I mean, workers in Australia, through their unions and everything, managed to achieve um, conditions, pay and general uh, rights that workers in the Soviet Union couldn't even dream of. I'll tell you something that was interesting to me were about your book that I find really fascinating is that, I mean, you, you open the book uh, talking about how you decide you're going to write a recollection because actually writing a recollection is actually very difficult. People who haven't attempted it don't realise how to answer that question that you pose from that idea of writing an autobiography, right? Because uh, it can't be definitive, as you say. Um, but uh, one of the things that you do, which I find fascinating, is you actually describe all the things that you remember that uh, that were very clear in your mind um, as episodes. You don't try and make an integrated um, narrative in that sense. So they stand alone, and I find that really fascinating because it gives us a chance to actually evaluate uh, things that have happened to you, and uh, you are able, and then we're able to contextualise it, which I, I think is really an interesting approach. Can you tell us a little bit about how you dealt with writing this recollection? Well, <clears throat> one of the problems uh, about I was asked to write this account for almost 50 years and um, I kept on putting it off and by the time I got around to it recently um, by that time my parents had long ago died uh, died long ago um, and uh, my younger sister was only two to six years old so she had quite different memories or couldn't remember a lot of what had happened and my older sister of course is very ill and uh, she is unable to remember anything about that. So um, I w was forced to um, rely on both my memories as well as uh, using a whole range of both official sources, historical accounts of Australia and the Soviet Union and the world, of uh, films and uh, various other uh, uh, kind of... Uh, 
historical and memoirs uh, written by other people and so forth, and, and putting them together. So the book is not a linear kind of narrative of what happened to us, but is, as you say, it's um, based thematically on what we encountered. That is, it, it's got uh, it's both episodic as well as um, contextualizing that whether it was the background of my mother in Poland before she came to Australia or the background of my father in Russia uh, before he left, the family left in 1921 in the midst of civil war and then living in Palestine. And the very notion, when I went to the government records, the National Archives, and I saw my father listed as a Palestinian, I mean, that itself, when I looked at it 12 or 14 years ago, was a bit of a cultural shock because to describe a Jew as a Palestinian had not been really done for about 60 or 70 years. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating, isn't it? That's that's exactly it. Your book is full of culture shocks because, I mean, even down... Because you are standing in a particular place and you lift a curtain up around things that uh, people from other cultural backgrounds don't understand because Australia is a melting pot. Yes, and but... The way that migrants were treated um, in the 40s and the 50s and beforehand, I mean, my parents had arrived a decade before Arthur Corwell coined the term New Australians to describe any migrant coming to Australia who was not British. Mm. And so even though they uh, were here a decade before that, they were also classified as that. I mean, I, I talk in the book about... Uh, what a name meant. I mean, in Australia, the name Boris was just unheard of. There were <laughs> you could count you can count the number of Borises on your fingers, mm. and everybody had heard of because they went to films and that of Boris Karloff, as you know, in Frankenstein and other films. Or well, Boris was the name given to villains on TV series, <laughs> but, but Boris uh, just wasn't an Australian name. You had to be a Tom, Dick or a Harry or a, a, a Susan or Elizabeth or Mary to be Australian, but it have to help you, you know, if your name uh, was something else. And it was not until multicultural policy started in the 70s under Whitlam that um, Australia began to recognise that it had a diverse multicultural population that uh, was really treated as second-class citizens. Yeah, it's really outrageous stuff, isn't it? It's absolutely outrageous. But it's great to get a backward view uh, uh, that takes us into the future because, as they say, the past, the past is never dead. It's still, it's still um, present, um, and uh, Australia is uh, quite clearly uh, still coming to terms with its place, um, like white Australia history versus. Uh, indigenous peoples, uh, as well as, um, as you say, uh, I mean, you know, that whole uh, discussion about Indigenous Australia um, and uh, white Australia, uh, Anglo-Celtic Australia, the percentage of people who have come from other countries other than uh, those those traditional um, uh, white Australians has now been surpassed, hasn't it? So it's... It's crazy. Yes, well, my mother, when she came to Australia in 1937, she came at the same time as another uh, Jewish person, uh, Jossel Bergner, the painter. 
And for those listeners who are not aware, uh, Jossel Bergner was a living in Parkville and in Fitzroy and that, and in, in very poor, you know, kind of tenement houses. And what he was shocked about was seeing the Aboriginal population of Fitzroy and other places not as proud Indigenous people on their traditional lands, but as oppressed and discriminated minority living appalling, uh, under appalling conditions. And what he painted, he recognised in them something that he identified in, his, in Poland, namely the way poor Jews were treated and discriminated. And he painted a series of pictures, uh, both on Aborigines in Australia and Jews in Poland. And in the 40s, they, these paintings were the first paintings that any artist had painted of, of seeing Indigenous people in a new light, the way that they were treated uh, in Australia at that time. You, you also discuss, uh, because your family, uh, you discuss this whole issue of um, the non-Jew, Jew, Jewish, the non-Jewish Jewish person, right? Yes, the non-Jewish Jew. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I wasn't sure if I'd got that right. I mean, this is a really important uh, discussion. Well, um, the the term the non-Jewish Jew is really made famous by the uh, another Polish person, uh, the uh, radical Trotskyist Isaac Deutscher. And in a lecture he gave in 1958, he talked about the non-Jewish Jew. And what he was discussing is the way in which uh, people like Marx and Einstein and Freud and Rosa Luxemburg and Trotsky himself rejected the narrow uh, ghetto, Jewish ghetto life, but also could not be part of the larger Christian capitalist society because of anti-Semitism. And so they advocated ideas that transcended the narrowness of Jewish life, the ghetto life, and the broader discriminatory life in in uh, uh, countries in Europe, America, and Australia, and they uh, and so uh, he coined this term the non-Jewish Jew, and at the same time he argued that after two world wars that were based on nationalism, national rivalry. It was a tragedy that the State of Israel was born exactly after two world wars. Now, he didn't believe that it was a tragedy because another Holocaust would come and all the Jews would be wiped out again, like Hitler had carried out. But he believed that the contributions made by so many Jewish people would be submerged by them becoming another nationalist uh, enclave so that just as other nation-states were very nationalist, so he was extremely worried that Jews in Israel would now become narrow nationalists. Oh, my goodness, now, he, what a precedent, Pat Bellow. Yes, and so 65 years later, even Deutsche could not imagine how militaristic and nationalistic Israel had become. Oh, it's, yes, it's it's... We've run out of time, but um, I'll have to tell people that uh, you've got your book launch, haven't you, on Tuesday the 28th? That's right, at Readings in St Kilda, close to where many of the events happened. Yeah, it's at 6.30pm. Uh, 
at 6 for 6.30pm. Yep. And the book is available in all good, book, good bookshops if you uh, search it out. Um, and thank you very much, Annie, for having me on. Oh, thank you very much for writing the book. I found it fascinating. Thank you. And that was... Uh, Boris Frankel, and uh, yeah, you should. No Country Pariah Dealers. Um, and uh, that is the end of the show. Uh, we had some words from the rally, Sydney Rally uh, for Palestine. Uh, don't forget the rally tomorrow at 12 on the steps of State Library um, because it's not over until it's over. And uh, thank you very much to Vivian Langford uh, who took that recording. Uh, we went to the Respect March, which was held on Friday at uh, Parliament and then went to the Carlton Gardens and to a smoking ceremony. Uh, and uh, we went uh, to the Preston Market with uh, Connor Flynn, who came in and gave us an update. This is the week that was. And then, of course, Boris, Boris Franklin. Um, we're going to go out with... Um, <laughs> this is a great song. It's uh, a bit dark, but it's from the Smith Street Band. It's, it's Wipe That Silly Grin Off That Punchable Face. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. I'll sink slowly into some ants Running round the city square I've always felt a little different But now I can breathe in the anger on the dirty air Grubby beauty blocked out by Streets and time painted their slogans on the silhouette My skyline It is not enough To be quiet on the train back home Dance in the decade, fearing failing And our heart starts beating in time With the white noise and the rancing and raving In our official party line We must respond We need a fire You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.